Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Films of the Week with your host James on Infinity Cast. Uh, in today's episode, as I said last week, I'm going to be doing an animation-themed week, uh, in which I'm going to pull out two two really great animated films that have really flown under the radar. Uh, the first of which is called Adventures of Tintin: The Secret of the Unicorn, and also the second one. Uh, the film is called Your Name. It's a 2016 uh, animated film that I think everyone should take the time to watch because it's it's amazing. Yes, you'll probably have to listen to sub with subtitles or dubbed, uh, but the story is great and the way it's uh, designed and animated is incredible as well. So let's start on Adventures of Tintin, The Secret of the Unicorn. Uh, the film came out in 2011 and was highly anticipated because of the whole Tintin subject when it was published between 1929 and 1976 and there's been very little to to show since the arrival from the magazines in between those decades but the fact that they got it got a 21st century revamp uh, there was a lot of hype around it as someone who was only so young during this film i didn't really appreciate the subject matter when i was watching it but i really understand the plot and the placement of the film within society and within the history of the tintin universe which was post and pre world war 2 so the film follows the intrepid reporter Tintin and Captain Haddock as they set off on a treasure hunt for a sunken ship commanded by Haddock's ancestors so the story starts with Tintin, a uh, French reporter, uh, or French origin reporter, uh, starting off his life and going to the market, which was outside the front of his house. He goes down there and uh, goes to a store and sees a model ship that someone's selling for three gold pieces or something like that. Uh, and he, he buys it uh, there and then. Just straight after he bought it, a guy comes up and offers way more to Tintin for the, the ship. Obviously there's something shady going on here because Tintin paid three for it and this guy was offering at least double, so six. So he's coming to him, he's like, no, I don't I don't want to sell it, I bought it, it's my product, it's a good price and I'm gonna keep it. So he then proceeds to take it back to his house, goes off to do something or other and comes back in his house, his, or his room is trashed. He goes through it trying to see what's been taken, there's nothing that can be seen apart from the model ship. The model ship had been taken and he doesn't know why. In searching around he finds a small little um, metal capsule uh, which he opens and finds the first half of what looks like a treasure map or a riddle to a treasure map uh, involving someone called Haddock, uh, uh, Captain Haddock who was the leader of the French Armada during the 17th and 18th century and legend says that his ship the Unicorn got destroyed by a pirate called Red Reckon uh, who capsized the ship or should I say Haddock capsized the ship because uh, Reckon was about to take over and all the treasure in the hull of the ship needed to be um, destroyed or put down into the ocean so that he couldn't get it and he couldn't steal from the French Armada. So they have a fight uh, on the ship and Reckham ends up cursing the Haddocks to fight for the treasure uh, for the rest of their lives and whoever gets the treasure first will be the one who ends the curse. And both of them are on a quest to try and find it to end the curse and end the bloodshed between the two family names. Uh, so we cut to the mid 20th century and both of them are still trying to find the treasure but it's been split between a few places uh, which Tintin managed to stumble across one third of the 
uh, map itself, it got split into three parts, and each one of them put in a replica of the unicorn, which Tintin managed to get hold of the model. So one of the two people who came up to him offering him more money was Captain Haddock, and I guess that the plot is then that the Red Reckham's uh, ancestor is trying to, well, did steal uh, Tintin's part of the ship, and yeah. So he traces it down and he starts to put the pieces together. He finds that the next one of the ships is in the Haddock Mansion, which isn't too far away from him. So he travels there with his lovely companion, Snowy, who is a white wire fox terrier. If you don't know the breed of the dog, then just look it up. It's a really cute dog, I would say. So yeah, as I said, they travel to the Haddock Mansion and they go there and find that there's another ship, but it's missing its silver capsule with the map in. You also find you find out that the red the red sack's ancestor is living in the house now. Obviously the whole fact that the haddock is not living in the haddock mansion anymore is a bit of a red flag but they manage to tra tail this person as he gets on the ship they don't know where the ship's going but they, they get on it and they find the actual Captain Haddock or the reincarnation of Captain Haddock uh, who was the captain of the ship but got intoxicated and locked, locked in his own uh, captain's quarters so Red Rack managed to come in and overthrow the ship and start sailing it towards the Middle East because he's on the tail of the third and final piece of the map which will allow them to go to the location of the buried treasure and obviously end the curse. Some things happen, I'm not going to highlight what happens on the ship, but they end up getting into the Sahara Desert and having to try and work their way towards this fictional uh, city to try and find the collector who has the third and final piece. They get there and is occupied by uh, Nazi Germans or the, the Axis party uh, and obviously being French or Belgium, French-Belgium should I say, they aren't on the same side so they have to manage to sneak their way through and manage to get themselves into this palace without being seen or without being recognised too much because Tintin is a famous reporter and obviously there's a certain level of stardom and know-how from the people across the world with his, his work or his news reporting work should I say. I'm not going to cover too much more of the plot, but the plot develops from that point and there's a lot of incredible scenes and incredibly well shot and well designed scenes considering it was a hand drawn and hand animated film. Uh, I just want to comment on the sequence in which they're leaving the palace and working their way down to the shoreline because it's that's regarded as one of the best animated shots ever created. It was... It starts with the top of a hill and it slowly starts to progress from that hill following two cars as they're chasing down the hill and everything you're seeing in the shot is hand-drawn from the water barrier breaking behind them to the flooding of the waters, the house moving to the transition shots, the fact that the camera goes in between um, windows and comes out and follow and tracking shots and everything is just hand-animated and I think from reading into the subject, it took them at least a year to get this entire sequence uh, from start to finish edited and also shot because there's so many different elements and if you play, replay it and you look at a certain part of the screen there's different things happening all around it and a certain level of realism for this shot as well so when the water's coming in instead of things just crumpling some of the houses are moving are being slid down the hill and it's almost treated like a landslide if you've ever seen what flash floods and the landslides destroying houses the whole dam breaking and the water coming in and crashing into the buildings doesn't inst uh, instantly mean the buildings fall apart and come into little crumbly bits. 
they slide and things break and there's consequences of things so brick hitting brick is causing damage and more and more things are starting to be thrown into it and there's a sequence involving the tank as well within the same scene and all these elements just are beautifully balanced and the camera follows the piece of paper only so there's stuff happening completely around it so Tintin's trying to grab it, uh, Snowy's trying to grab it, the Hawk's trying to grab it, Red Sack is trying to grab it and it's just the mayhem but it's not unfollowable and that's what sometimes happens with these action films is that there's quick camera cuts and there's you don't really know where things are in relation to each other but this is a slow pan and slow following of this piece of paper as it's floating like a feather in the air but there's carnage happening all around it and it's a beautiful balance between the two shots and the two subjects which is the, the city falling to pieces and everyone trying to get this piece of paper and the piece of paper just slowly floating down or being wafted by the wind uh, or being picked up by people and carried further towards the shoreline to the great escape that either one of them wants to get away with the piece of paper. And there's many of these sequences uh, involving beautiful cinematography and beautiful hand-designed drawings. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the Sahara, there's a sequence where the ship is gliding through the sand and the, the sand has been parted like waves uh, as the ship glides through and the storms and the colours and just the, the balance between all of the physical shots uh, and also the animated design and the stylistic choice that Steven Spielberg, who directed this, uh, chose to do with with the whole film. And I think that there's a great appreciation for all of the uh, knowledge and all of the story that the original artists and original designers did for Tintin, and that's elevated to another level. The same stylistic choice for the way Tintin is designed and Haddock is designed is so similar to the original drawings from 1929 that you could just come in and watch or even read the magazines coming from a 21st century point of view and know the characters as if they were the same in the film. Obviously the language is different uh, with the fact that the French-English, French-Belgium uh, change is a little difficult to, to translate fully but the story is comprehensive and the story is well written so much so that you can follow it as if they are English as as if it was designed for an English speaking audience to, to watch or Western audience should I say. I would also like to take the time to talk to you about the casting for this film. From start to finish it's got an A-list cast from Jamie Bell who, who voices Tintin to Andy Serkis who voices Captain Haddock to Daniel Craig who voices the uh, reincarnation of Red Sack also Nick Frost and Simon Pegg playing the Thompson twins and also having Toby Jones as Silk. It's a star-studded English cast from start to finish and for any of you who don't don't know who Jamie Bell is uh, you will probably recognize him from being Billy in Billy Elliot. Uh, Griffin from Jumper, also Ben from Fantastic Four, Edgar from Snowpiercer, uh, and also Benny Tuppin from Rocketman. And he's been in so many great English-led and English-directed films that you would probably, probably recognise his face more than recognising his name, but he does an absolutely stunning job of playing Tintin and voicing a Tintin that seems realistic, seems grown up, despite him being a child character. It feels like he's seeing the world for the first time and seeing the difference and not really understanding the danger that he's putting himself in to get the right story from this case. And I don't think I have to tell any of you about Andy Serkis, um, he's been in so many and he's become such a great character actor uh, for his roles within Lord of the Rings and more recently for his work in uh, the 
Rise of the Planet of the Apes, War for the Planet of the Apes, and being such a big character actor, it's not out of touch for him to play or be voicing a character, but it's slightly different to what he normally plays. He normally embodies the character physically from the way that he's been learning how to walk like an ape in the Rise of the Planet of the Apes uh, reboot, through to the way that he was on set uh, in New Zealand playing Gollum and he's he's grown and he's started to create a little uh, niche of his own that he becomes the monster actor he becomes the different actor and it's a uh, it's a good resume to have having uh, two great franchises on your back and he's starting to work more towards helping other people to to go into this character acting and to go into this CGI led characters because he was the innovator and the pioneer of uh, being a well liked and well received CGI character with no physical human representation in the way that they look but he embodied the characters and he becomes such a great character actor that he can carry a role like Gollum. As I said earlier it was also directed by Steven Spielberg and again I don't have to highlight the roles and stuff he's been a part of but but Tintin managed to get itself nominated for an Oscar for best uh, achievement for a written musical piece for a motion picture for John Williams. It also managed to win itself a Golden Globe in 2012 for best uh, animated feature film and also got nominated for the director and also for the best visual visual effects uh, and that doesn't really happen too much for animated films to be able to win or be nominated for an Oscar or even Golden Globe in this case. But as I said in last week's episode, for, for films to be able to get a critical and cult following uh, behind it, which this film did, is, is a great balance. And I think that any filmmakers out there trying to create a film for an audience, you should really try and pitch it to either or because if it happens that both sets of camps, so the critics and the, the casual audience love it, then the film will become a success and that's a really hard thing to do and very, very few films have been able to, to balance between the critical claim and also the um, cult status that a film can get. If you are really wanting to watch this film, I'm afraid it won't be on any streaming platform, so you will either have to try and find the DVD copy of it, which I don't think will set you back too much because I think the value for money of the film is, is great from start to finish. But I rented it from Amazon Prime, but as I said, there's many other different forms of renting and streaming platforms out there that you should be able to, to rent or, or even buy it offline because it's it's so great. I would really recommend keeping it in your collection and looking back on it. And I, the subject of this, these podcasts are to, to highlight films that might have missed the boat, but with this film, I well, and the fact they managed to make so much money off the first film, I do think the, the vast majority of people have seen it, and I'm going to be honest, you probably have seen it, but if you haven't, and you've missed the boat on this, or missed the boat in 2011 when this came out, then take the time to watch it, because it's great, and it hasn't got enough love and enough attention to be able to get a sequel, which is underrated, and I think that there's so many films out there that didn't deserve a sequel, but this one does, and I think that if we we as an audience manage to get the chance to get a film like this back and get another film out, then that will be great. Okay, well this is about all the time I have for this part of the podcast. As I said, normally I'm going to grab a break, grab a drink, and I'll come back to you after the short little break. Welcome back to the second part of this podcast. Uh, I'd like to now talk to you about another great animated film. However, this one is probably one you've not heard of. 
Uh, the name of the film, or the English name of this film, is called Your Name. It's a 2016 romantic fantasy film uh, straight out of Japan, if you hadn't gathered. Uh, the film follows two teenagers who share a profound and magical connection upon discovering they can switch bodies. Uh, things manage to become even more complicated when the boy and the girl decide to meet in person. Uh, that's a huge, huge limit to the amount of plot that was, is within this, but I just want to talk to you about why I think this film is so great and the certain characteristics, characteristics of the film that help it to really stand out to a Western audience because, as I said, it's a Japanese film, so it came straight out of Japan and wasn't really tailored towards an English-speaking audience. But if you wanted to watch it, there was a sub which is, you can read subtitles uh, in English, and it can also be dubbed, which means the voices are being replaced with English actors saying the lines, which kind of loses the authentic feel of the film, but if you don't know Japanese or if you haven't been accustomed to reading subtitles, then it's something that you should definitely try, because the characteristics and the, the way that the film is presented and shown is incredible, and I don't want anyone to lose the opportunity to watch it or be scared off by the fact that it's a Japanese film. So let me slightly walk you through the narrative of the film because as I said earlier that um, description isn't exactly given too much in detail. So um, the film opens up with Wataki, um, the main character, uh, waking up and getting ready to go to school. He's a normal school kid uh, with normal everyday teen problems, which is he has to work hard at school to try and get out of an education system which is very brutal and very well designed, but it can cause a lot of issues uh, for Japanese and Asian-inspired kids to, to grow because it's very regimented and very right and, right and wrong. So he goes to school, he has loads of friends and he has to work a Saturday night or Saturday and Sunday job to be able to pay for some of his housing bills uh, because he's a young student and he's also living with a family who needs the financial support or the financial income from everyone having to work. Uh, so he, he goes to sleep after work but he wakes up the next day in a different bedroom in a different house. Uh, and he, he proceeds to look in the mirror and finds out that he is a girl uh, who's named Mishira uh, and he, he with a new family and he's just like, what has happened? Why am I in this body? So he, he, he goes and tries to, to play this female character or female girl and meets her friends and starts to get a better relationship with the different gender because as a guy it's hard to understand what females are like and the way that they act and the way that they are with each other and to counter this um Mishia who is the girl that um Tika uh, is is now in his body and it basically cuts between the two of them um as they're trying to come to terms with the fact that they are different people now and having to live as these people but what they start to find out over time is that they keep switching back it's kind of a week on week off sort of thing so they get a week in their body and they get a week in the other person's body and they start to build a romance between the two of them because obviously Taki is living like her and she's living like him and they start to get to know each other's family and the way that they interact with the families and also the way that they act 
and at no point have they ever met or ever talked, but they leave each other notes to saying, ah, oh, so this is what happened during this week, I talked to this person, you managed to get yourself an A on history, uh, you, you managed to earn yourself 800 quid during your work from tips or whatever, and they, they bond over that, and they bond over the fact that the abnormality of their situation, uh, the fact that both of them are having to live two lives at the same time and having two groups of friends and two groups of family and it gets hard and they as I said they start to leave each other notes about what's happened during the week and they start to learn each other uh, and their each other's names so hence the the name of the title which is your name because uh, Taki doesn't know the name of Mishia and Mishia doesn't know the name of Taki uh, throughout the entire film and it, there's a lot of things that happen um, in the narrative of the film with both them uh, trying to grow with people and trying to, to balance out and trying to find out what happened to them or why they're switching bodies. Um, the only thing that is similar between the two of them is the fact that there's a shooting star uh, every so often and it seems to that is the reason why they switch. But no one truly understands where uh, they are and what they're doing. All that they know is, is that he's in Tokyo and she's in a suburban area uh, away from Tokyo in the middle of nowhere surrounded by countryside. And there's a little foreshadowing uh, throughout the entire film with the location and the mystery that these two people share. Um, I'm not going to go too much into detail because this plot is incredible and I, I'm trying to tiptoe myself around it because I really don't want to spoil anything for anyone viewing it. I remember when I first watched this film, uh, I was in uh, East Asian cinema class at university, which I did in second year, and I've heard so much about this film and the fact that people love it, and I've never heard of it, so I came in with a completely clear mind, or I knew the name of the film, and that was it, nothing about the plot, but going in and watching it, and being able to understand it, as it, it was like week five or six of this East Asian, so I was starting to get comfortable with reading um, subtitled English and I was just blown away. I was blown away by the design, I was blown away by the colour palette and just the narrative and the story-driven arcs within this film. And that's something that East Asian film and East Asian TV is great for, is the kind of weird, wacky humour, but it's so character and story-driven that any Western audience member would be like, wow, why can't we get this sort of thing? So. There's certain animated films and TV shows that have drip fed into Western society. So you think of Pokemon, Dragon Ball Z, Yu-Gi-Oh, all East Asian TV shows. But they've obviously become more of a Western audience thing because we've enjoyed it. And it's a certain le leeching effect that certain East Asian stuff has. And this film is one of them. I think that people should treat as though it's different, yes, but you should appreciate and adapt to the different that this film is offering you as a viewer. I would also just like to comment about the way that the design is all done. As, as the same with Tintin, this is all hand animated and hand designed uh, film, from all the drawings to the movements to the lights to the beautiful colour palette is all hand drawn and a lot of effort gets put into these sorts of films uh, for animated films because there's a certain level of craft and they've even got courses at university trying to teach people how to design and draw anime style characters consistently and it, it brings me back to the whole Disney um, stop motion uh, images and films that they used to do back in the 70s but from a stylistic point of view they're still continuing to do it in East Asia uh, mainly Japan because 
it's great and it's not over complicated they they have very smart techniques of being able to indicate movement and indicate certain aspects of life without having to put too much effort in and you come to appreciate it the more and more you start to look at these sorts of things you start to appreciate the way that it's drawn and the fact that someone has spent a year or even possibly two years of their lives drawing this character and it's become such a big project for them and coming in with that sort of knowledge and the knowledge that these people have spent their entire lives creating this piece or part of their lives creating this piece it's, it's just stunning and I know that these people are the VFX artists of their country and a lot of VFX artists don't get a lot of praise but in anim in the animated scene and in the Japanese scene these people were held, hailed as gods and creative geniuses and I think that anyone who has a snippet of their life and has a snippet of the way that they live you'll see that anime and all animated characters are such a big part of Japanese culture from restaurants designed around them to the branding to the identity behind the embodiment of some of these characters and it's a whole different world and if you ever watch any sort of documentaries about Japan and about the culture that they're having you, you will see that it animated films animated the animated scene within Japan is, is huge and it's a huge part of their cinema as well and your name is currently the cherry at the top of this uh, animated film there's also some absolutely amazing animated films out there like Spirited Away and also My Neighbor Totoro both these films well, one came out in 1988 and the other one came out in 2001 and if you like those sorts of films and if also if you like your name then you would enjoy this sort of scene and there's loads of films that I can recommend any of you to, to go and watch because a friend of mine named Ben managed to, to get me onto the animated scene and I've never really looked back. I've, I enjoy the TV shows, I enjoy the films, I enjoy all of those sorts of things because it's so different to, to view and so different to watch. And I think anyone who has the chance and wants to have the chance to watch a film that will challenge them and will also make them see a whole new world and appreciate a whole new culture, then feel free to watch this film and feel free to look up any suggested films out there within the same genre. To put into context for any of you out there who enjoys watching films, uh, your name is being voted by on IMDb as the 73rd best film ever made. It managed to win itself a fair few awards over there from the East uh, East Asian Pacific Screen Awards for Best uh, Animated Film through to uh, Cult Filmmakers for Best Score, Best Director, Best Picture and also the Australian Academy Cinema Awards uh, it managed to win itself Best Asian Film. It's not managed to win any Western Audience Film Awards like your Golden Globes or Oscars or whatever but I think that if this film had the same sort of love as it has now. This film would have managed to win itself so many critical Western awards, but it slowly is a slow burner, and it was a slow burning film because, as I said, it got released in 2016 to a fair few people in Asia and it's starting to slowly leech its way over the Pacific into America and even all its way over to England as I said I managed to, to watch it in East Asian cinema uh, class at university and I appreciate anyone who's given me the opportunity to watch something like this because I was scared to I didn't really know what to watch but there's certain people that have aided me and guided me into watching certain things and if any of you out there who wants to watch another East Asian cinema film that you probably would enjoy then a Parasite would be another great film and I've been wanting to cover it in one of these podcasts and I might cover it next week who knows but 
it's a great film and I think that that's another film that has been able to carry over the uh, Pacific into a Western audience and that film is the quintessential uh, view into what Asian filmmaking is like and it can be like and how engaging it can be as well. I would also just like to comment on the fact that Studio Ghibli does an amazing job of creating animated films. They're the East Asian version of your DreamWorks, your Disney and all your other massive animated production houses that are in a Western audience and, and if you just want to watch an animated Japanese film then you can just go on them and just click on any one of their films and you know the consistent levels that they will show will mean the film is great. No matter what the film is, no matter how old the film is, they have a certain level of quality that is consistent throughout all their films and Your Name is another great example of that. And as a Western audience member I also really appreciate the work that Netflix is doing to try and boost uh, East Asian cinema and East Asian TV to a Western audience. So I managed to originally watch it in a East Asian cinema lesson at university but it's also on Netflix and for any of you out there who has the time and has about two hours to watch this film it's, it's great and I, I think that they offer, Netflix offers you a similar um, people viewed or searched for with the, the product. So if you just go down there, you'll be able to watch and see the trailers for some great films and great other uh, TV shows that come out of East Asia. And if you take the time to just sit down and watch these trailers and, and can get over the fact that it could be uh, sub subtitled or dubbed, uh, change the voice. But if you get over that and you get through the film and you get the plot that they're trying to present, then you, you will enjoy this film. And I will put my guarantee on this film as being probably the highly highest recommended film that I've ever covered on these podcasts. And if you were to listen to me and were to to say if you had to pick one film that you'd recommend me watching I would put this at the pinnacle of that and I would say it's better than any film I've ever seen uh, or talked about on these podcasts and it's got that, that level of seal of approval for me. Okay, well that's about all the time I have for today's podcast. I really appreciate any of you sticking around to the end of it. Uh, as I have said throughout the, this podcast, these films are incredible and I would highly recommend any of you taking the time to watch them. Both of them are under two hours, so both of them could be watched in an evening or even just if you're making dinner or whatever. I don't know what you do when you watch films. But take the time, watch these films and if you wanted someone to talk to about it, uh, my Twitter will be in the description of this video or it will be on the Infinity Cast website when that gets published. As I said, I've been James Eatwell. You've been listening to Affinity Cast on Spotify, and thank you for listening.